this particular topic, metabolic set point, I think we all hear about it pretty early in our careers. Even as just a, a novice dieter, you start reading, you know, around looking at information, and this concept comes up. And I, I mentioned, as we talked about it earlier this week, that the whole term theory throws people a little bit as if, you know, this thing is just, you know, it, it may actually be there and it may not, it's still a theory. And, and again, I have to say that in science, when something moves from hypothesis to theory, it means there has been a substantial amount of research. It's been verified quite a bit and it only moves to a law like the law of gravity when something can be completely measure, measurably defined all the time, like the law of gravity, 9.8 meters per second squared. So, so being a theory is not necessarily a bad thing. That means it, it, is, it is there, it, it exists. But there will always probably be some conjecture about, you know, what does it really mean? And, and do we have the entire picture? What, what do we not even know we don't know yet? And those are some of the things that you run up against when you start reading about metabolic set point theory, because you will you will see this terminology, you know, even beginning in the 1950s and, and, and forward. Uh, a lot of research was done, a pretty heavy wave of it was done in the 1980s and 90s. So at this point, there's not that much current attention being paid to it because it's pretty much settled. And, and so I want to talk about those particular points of, of context that we do know, and then yet some of the, some, some of the things that are just, you know, still going to have to be applied almost individually, you know, based on our individual genetics and so forth. So, so metabolic set point, the, the, the whole phrase set point in biology, uh, it works hand in hand with something I talk about a lot, which is that biology often works on thresholds. So even just getting an action potential between two neurons over a synapse, you know, a motor end plate, plate perhaps with a, with a muscle fiber, you know, it, it takes a certain ramping up, there's, there's chemical activity there, and then you reach a certain threshold, and then that action potential, you know, fires, kind of like a spark plug in that example. And biochemically, that happens a lot where there are homeostatic ranges that our body wants to keep everything in, everything necessary for life. So blood oxygen levels, carbon dioxide levels, calcium levels, amino acid levels, all of these things, glucose levels are measured by chemoreceptors in the bloodstream. And your brain is constantly making corrections in either direction just to make sure that you have the right ranges for life to continue. So set point, for example, uh, let me let me let me start out with with one particular analogy, which would be like like an astronaut who goes into space, and we know that within a few short weeks, uh, uh, an astronaut's bone calcium density can come down quite a bit. Uh, I can't remember if it's like a full year if, if somebody's been on the International Space Station that they come back and their bone density is, is like 30% reduced. It may happen even sooner than that. But can you imagine going into space and then coming back and you've lost a third of your bone mass? So one could contend, and this was one of the mysteries with metabolic set point, what, you know, what happens if that astronaut stayed up there for two years or 10 years do they come back and all of a sudden their calcium set point has changed permanently? 
Now it's like, okay, sorry, you're just going to be breaking bones the rest of your life because you were in space for two years or 10 years. And, and thankfully, you know, no, millions of years of evolution has dictated that these set points and these thresholds are genetically determined, that they're programmed in our DNA. So even after that length of time, you know, there isn't something that has permanently changed. So again, they tested things like this, theories like this with metabolism, and they found that indeed, the longer you stay overweight, or the longer you even stay in a fasted or starvation rate, your metabolic set point doesn't change. So that's one first principle I want you to keep in mind. The other is, you know, first of all, let's let's kind of back up and define what what metabolic set point is. I, I think you guys already all know, but let me let me just throw it out there in case there's any confusion. So there's a there's kind of a, and this is a theory, but again, it's, I think anybody who has ever dieted, especially more than once, you're going to, you're going to know that this is true. There's a, a place where you can say, okay, at this body fat level, at this body composition, when I reach 12% body fat or 7% body fat or 4% body fat, life is different. Like life is way different. My hunger is different. Uh, my, my metabolism is different. So there is a metabolic set point where original theorists would say, this is where the body wants to be. And there's kind of a collective within our, our species. And there are certainly outliers that could be high or low for different reasons. But there is a certain point where if you get below that, your body fights to get back up to it, meaning your body fat level gets too low, which we as you know, professional competitive dieters have experienced, then there's, there's upward pressure where your body wants, wants your body fat to go higher. And then if we become overweight or obese, there is kind of downward pressure where your body says, man, I, I, this is not healthy. Your body knows it's not healthy. And so it kind of wants to pull you back down. So you, you have to really investigate both sides of that coin. You have to do research and, and really see. And then some of the questions arise, you know, is it really that definable? Is it an exact body fat level or, or what actually does trigger that to happen? Uh, can you change it? As I gave the analogy with the astronauts and so forth. Um, so these are some things that we're going to talk about, some things that researchers have looked at. And, and there are some interesting corollaries or tie-ins to parts of physiology that, that you may uh, be surprised by, but then I think a lot of things you're gonna you're gonna realize are are definitely what you thought. So let's start with first of all the uh, the contention that that this can be changed, and they they've done research, uh, and a lot of research has been done, you know, both in in human studies, you know, rat studies, and so forth, and one of the things they look at is let's let's diet people down to a certain level and and see you know at what points do you actually have to reduce food intake to keep them dieting uh is there a point at which you really have to keep taking away calories because you've gone you know quote through that set point and things are getting harder what is actually causing that uh without diet can you affect the set point in other ways through disease process or uh, one theory was even kind of like, kind of like the, the astronauts. This is where I got the idea for that analogy. 
uh, they, they thought maybe it's some kind of constant stress. Like if, if somebody was under just constant, constant, constant stress, like, like maybe they're a marathon runner and they're running eight hours a day constantly. And, and that, you know, does, does that constant extra physical stress change the metabolic set point? Um, one particular group, a, a theoretical, mathematical, biological, you know, journal group looked at doing a statistical analysis of the Minneapolis study. Was it the Minnesota? I think it's the Minnesota study. So if you're not familiar with that in World War II, uh, they, they took a group of people and they intentionally starved them for months, for like three months. They, they, they wanted them to, you know, go down, you know, lose 25% of their their body mass and get to a level where they almost looked like, cause again, this was a world war II study, like prisoner of war. Like, like what happens when you starve somebody like that? So this particular group did a, a retro analysis of that data. Cause the data is massively comprehensive and, and to say, okay, you know, did that affect their metabolic set points? Because we, we kind of look at it from often the other end, which is, you know, being overweight or you, you hear the, the, the crap out there, like, oh, you've got metabolic damage. And so you, you must gain 75 pounds of body fat to quote, fix your metabolism. You know, we know all of that is total BS. Uh, but I can explain why, you know, it is part of this, this workshop. So, so on that top end, on the bottom end, you know, what really happens, what, what affects that metabolism? So here was one interesting study that I really liked. And that is that they took, I believe it was 24 overweight women and uh, by overweight, it, they, they were all postmenopausal. They, they wanted it to be kind of a homogeneous group, um, you know, where they kind of were disadvantaged. Like there's, there's a reason they're, they're overweight, low thyroid, that kind of thing. Estrogen, progesterone levels are, are, are not what they were when they were 20. Uh, they had a very specific range. They wanted, they were all between 25 and 30 BMI. And they, they took them in for four, 10 day metabolic ward inpatient uh, pre-rec time. So you would go in for 10 days. They would do all kinds of analysis, blood work, uh, you know, your, your exact, uh, you know, calorimetry, you know, level of, of body composition, re resting metabolic rate. So they would get you the exact diet they want. They did that uh, four times so they could see how your body was doing. And, and then they actually gave you the food. So they had chefs and, and registered dietitians create the food for you. You would go home, you would eat this food. You had to go below 25 BMI. You know, that was the goal. And, and it took these women three to five months to do that. All of them, you know, crossed the finish line. They all got down there. They all, you know, the, the average loss was, was more than 40 pounds. And they were studying what happens to the metabolic set point, you know, if anything, with this happening. So this is probably out of about five or six studies I, I looked at to, to report on to you guys today. This is one of the best because it was that hyper controlled, you know, with those inpatient studies and all those different analytics. But they, what I really liked is they, they had them start at a certain point. They had a goal for where they would end. And when I first read this, I thought, oh my gosh, this was a 10 day study or, you know, that's, that's nothing. But then I realized, no, 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 this took, this took five months. You know, they, they took these women down, you know, more than 40 pounds on average. They looked at resting metabolic rate. They looked at T3, T4, reverse T3. They looked at all the hormones, everything that you would consider part 
or, or completely causal to the metabolic set point. And here's, here's two interesting things that are amazing. They, they should amaze you. The resting metabolic rate and the thyroid hormonal profile were almost exact mirrors of each other. So as the thyroid hormone dropped, the resting metabolic rate dropped by almost the exact same percentage. I mean, within a fraction of a fraction of a percent, meaning that your thyroid hormone, your profile is a really good indication of exactly what's happening with your metabolism. So another good note for you to keep your eye on that particular score in your blood panel. So they dropped within the first 10 days of dieting. So you're, you just, you start on your plan. You got your macros from your coach. You're ready to go. You're going to win the Olympia. Life's going to be amazing. Within 10 days, your metabolism has already dropped 6%. You, you haven't even had a chance to even need or want a cheat meal or a refeed or a diet break. And you're like, bam, you hit bottom and you stay there. Like it never really dropped any further. And then at the end of five months, losing over 40 pounds, guess what? They didn't need to gain a thousand pounds to fix their metabolism. Within 10 days, it came right back up to normal with postmenopausal sedentary women. Let that sink in for a second. With all the bullshit you hear online, about metabolic damage and metabolic suppression and you're you know killing yourself and so forth. That is an unbelievable statistic. And again, it's one study, but it was 24 women. And, and they said that, I think it was, there was only one, they, they even classified it like this. There was only one outlier. It was subject number five, you know, didn't have quite the response as, as the other 23. Otherwise it was incredibly consistent. So your first lesson is that metabolic set point isn't really that easy to impact long-term. These women went through a really aggressive diet. They lost a lot of body fat, and yet their metabolism recovered very quickly. Not only did the, the metabolism recover, but that shows that, that at least one way of defining the metabolic set point was, was right back, you know, to where it was, at least hormonally. There are a couple of other ways I think we can semantically describe metabolic set point, or at least a lot of people describe it this way. And that is that, um, you know, when, when we look at some of these studies, some, some, some are very controlled, you know, here's the food you get to eat. And during this phase of dieting, you eat this amount. And in this phase of dieting and research, you get this amount. Or you can let you, you can have a stimulus and then let those subjects eat whatever they want because you're measuring that response. You want to see what it really does to them behaviorally. And so, for example, in that Minnesota study, there were a lot of people who, you know, you, you and they, they I don't think they buy, actually volunteered for this. I, I think these people, the, these were actually, I think, draft dodging people or people who had gone AWOL or something. So they were kind of made to be in the study. They didn't have a choice. But anyway, after three months of starving, uh, a, a lot of them were just food focused, you know, became overweight afterwards and so forth uh, because they were just, you did, they went into this feasting frenzy and so forth. But even after that, in this mathematical analysis, 
they eventually kind of drifted back to where they were. There's another interesting piece to a study that showed that when you when you account for changes in activity. So one of the things that's really big to talk about is how neat non-exercise activity thermogenesis drops when we start dieting. You don't you don't walk around as much. You don't get up to you know you just you just you just quit moving as much. And, and they measured that also with these subjects because they, they started to see this trend, like, wait a second, we're, we're actually seeing maybe the metabolic set point did drop. Maybe after dieting, it really did come down. So they, they, they started looking and, and saw about an 11% drop. And maybe, maybe that's the golden number, like your, your, your metabolic set point can shift that far. But then they also decided to go back and look at what was happening with their activity and they said there was an exact 11% drop in actual calorie expenditure due to NEAT. And so, okay, now we have to flush that out. So we're back to the metabolic set point is DNA level. It's genetic. Like your, your metabolic set point is what you were born with. And so there, you know, through research, they start pairing that down. And that was always a central hypothesis, but they, they needed to check. And so what's, what's another way to do studies on something that is this mechanically biological? It's to actually disrupt the biology. So since metabolism is controlled by the hypothalamus, let's take a bunch of rats and let's, let's destroy that part of the hypothalamus. Let's, let's create very specific lesions that will lead to disrupting their ability to control metabolism because this this really is a hormonal phenomena. You, you guys all know what leptin is. Leptin is the hormone in body fat cells that when your body fat cells shrink too much, uh, this is produced and it, it released and it, it changes hunger. It drives you drives hunger cues to make you hungrier because your body perceives that you're getting too too lean and. Uh, and so you can disrupt these things at the, the hypothalamus level. And uh, so they did. And, and again, what they were able to concretely display is that metabolic set point is really controlled there. There's, there's your baseline and it's controlled by the hormonal cues, that, that neural endocrine loop that, that constantly monitors those things. So does just dieting affect that? Can you damage your hypothalamus? No, this is, this is like the operational core of your brain. If you were to think of this, like, um, I don't know, um, like star Wars, like, you know, there's the, the death star is the brain. And then you get into the center and there's, uh, I don't even know star Wars. So is it Palpatine or something that like, he's like the ruler of the dark force, whatever you guys are laughing at me. I have no idea what I'm talking about, but anyway, uh, at, at that level, like the, the innermost, innermost, innermost part of your brain that controls things like just pure heart function, lung function, kidney function, like it's almost brainstem level, your hypothalamus at the end of your brainstem, like that's where this is. It controls your circadian rhythms and so forth, which by the way, that was an interesting note in one of these studies, uh, because deep in the hypothalamus is the super chiasmatic nucleus that controls the circadian rhythms, that is directly tied to metabolic set point. 
So one of the reasons why when people have disrupted sleep or they sleep less than five hours a night consistently, and, and we can note through research that they have almost a 70% higher chance of obesity, people who go through different shift work transitions and their circadian rhythms are always disrupted, why those people have a really you know, much more difficult time with, with overweight and obesity is because you're right at the, the heart of that hypothalamic response and control of your metabolic set point. So one of the things I want you guys all to note as an underlying current is that this is all under your control. But at the same time, researchers love to look at society at large and say, well, we know not everybody's going to control it. That's why you can see obesity rates start to climb in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And now we're at you know, a 70% rate of, of overweight and obesity. Obviously, we haven't had 50 years of people's hypothalamuses being fried or something like that. Uh, it's not like information has become less available. It's become a billion times more available. Uh, it's not like, you know, all, all the registered dietitians and nutrition coaches disappeared for a couple of decades that the, yeah, the opposite has happened. And so, so what has happened to society? What, what is really underlying those things that we can't seem to control? And, and one particular study or meta-analysis looked at, you know, we, 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 can, we always like to blame it on things like the, 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 the introduction of high fructose corn syrup or the fact that we all eat more sugar now, we all eat more calories now. Uh, we, can, we, we know that we eat, I think it's like 500 calories more a day per person. Um, and, and so we think you know, that's just it. That's the whole bottom line. That's, that's, the, that's the issue. But here's the interesting part. Metabolic set point is what really does control your food urges, your hunger cues. And, and that's, that's what you have less control over. And, and, you know, you guys are a special group because like you're, you're in this. A lot of you are coaches who love this and you teach it and you coach people to do this. A lot of you are here because you're in the midst of your own transformation. You've lost a lot of weight already. So you know it can be done, but at large at that societal level, why is it not done? And one, one group, and I think this really has merit, hypothesized that you know metabolic set point isn't necessarily doing a, a lot with that. It's actually physical expenditure. Because get give you know left to our own devices, we really do have a stopping threshold. And there are some people at the end of the continuum, you know, on the on the the wrong side of the bell curve, they just don't like they 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 don't know how and when to stop. You know, somebody who's locked in their house, they can't even get out because they weigh a thousand pounds. I'm guessing there are some serious medical things there. You know, I mean that that's that's somebody who may have a hypothalamic issue. The average person, we kind of have our, our threshold and we stop, you know, that's as high as we go. I'll, I'll give you an example with me. You know, my dad and my older brother are phenotypically probably as close to me as you could be. You know, we're all about the same height and so forth. So my dad throughout his life, his very, very short life due to obesity gets, gets up to 250 pounds and that was kind of his max. You know, he was a 250 pound guy. He had a cousin who, you know, through his adult life, got up to about 400 pounds and he just stayed at 400 pounds. He, he never got up to a thousand, but 400 was kind of it. 
Uh, my older brother, he kind of hangs out around 275, 300. And, you know, this is, this is decades long. They don't, you know, my, my dad did diet a couple of times. I, you know, rode his ass a few times and made him lose weight and tried to save his life and all that. But, you know, other than that, you know, there, there's not these wild fluctuations. And so metabolic set point just kind of gets you to a certain level and then you're there. I mentioned a couple of days ago that I actually had to work really hard, even though I was a, you know, chubby little teenager and kid and, and I can gain weight very easily. I'm absolutely not an ectomorph. It took me a lot of work to get up to 200 pounds because my body kind of naturally wants to be around 180, 185. And, um, you know, I, I can come down below that. I'll describe that in a little bit. But that's, that's just kind of the metabolic set point in action. You see that regulating hunger cues and so forth. But this one particular study said what we're really not looking at in relation to the metabolic set point and obesity is energy expenditure. Because as soon as you get these people moving, like for me, at you know when I was at 200 pounds, I couldn't do cardio or I'd start losing weight. When I'm at about 180, 185, and I want to drop down to 160, 165, I don't have to change my food intake at all. I just have to do a little cardio. I, I could do it the other way around, but my body will start dropping. And they said, at large, when you really look at some of these, these meta topics in society, metabolic set point is going to kind of govern those hunger cues enough. And what we're really missing is the fact that people are just so unbelievably sedentary now and increasingly so. I mean, think of all of even the manual labor jobs we used to do. Now those people just kind of press a button and watch a robot do it. Um, you know, we, we keep we keep doing things. You don't even have to turn a screwdriver anymore. You just, you know, press this button. And, and so, you know, those are some of the things that, that tie into this. But, but let, me, let me go through just a couple things. I want to make sure I didn't miss anything in my notes here. Um, you know, de definitely, as I said, at the, the hypothalamus level, the upper motor neuron control is, uh, is key. Okay, looks like I kind of covered everything I wanted to. So, so let me go back to now some application points. If we know that even, even going through the massive level of starvation you can go through, like losing 25% of your body fat, being forced into starvation, or having years and years and decades of obesity, if even by losing or gaining weight and holding it that long, if that does not change that level, and we know it truly is at that central core upper motor neuron control level, you know, can we mess this up? And, and again, the answer is only, only if you disrupt your, your capacity for the right kind of hormonal balance. And that is even more difficult to disrupt than you think. How many people do you think have hypothyroid disease in our country that need to be medicated and, and they really just can't function without it? You're looking at 5%. So you as a competitor, especially today, I think it's, it's phenomenal, those of you who are competitors, um, to have the ability to get these blood chemistry profiles done at will, you know, spend a couple hundred bucks or whatever. And, and I've seen a lot of competitors do this now where they're, they're even checking testosterone every month or throughout, you know, in different phases. And I, and I think that's just brilliant. And I think that's a good way to get to know your body, but never fail 
to get those measurements done again when you are two, three, four months post diet stimulus, because you're going to see that those things are very normal. You know, your, your hormonal profile will go down. Thyroid hormone is going to go down, you know, in this one study by 6% almost immediately. Testosterone's going to come down. Things like that are just the natural adaptation to that dieting stimulus, but then they're going to come right back up. Even if you go to a starvation level, you have, you have massive biological res resiliency there. So I'm, I'm going to go back through a little bit of, of, a, of, a, of an illustration that I did a couple of days ago with our, our core group. And that is that, um, as I described myself, at, at one time in my life, I actually wanted to get to 200 pounds. That was kind of a powerlifting goal. I wanted to, I wanted to be there, you know, big and strong. And so uh, I was able, I, I had to, to even get there. I, I had to eat more than 3000 calories a day to get there. I was up around 3,200 calories, 3,500 calories a day to get there. When I decided to kind of coast and stay there, it took me about 2,800 calories to stay there. So you would say, okay, you know, for Joe to be 200 pounds, which my best pro competition weight was 150. So this is 50 pounds, 25% more body mass. It took me 2,800 calories. So when I started working my way down and over the course of 11 months, I came down to about 160. That's the year I actually won my pro card. So it took me 11 months to lose 40 pounds. Uh, the very first step I made I mentioned earlier was just to start doing cardio, kept my food pretty high. And, uh, and I was able to get down, you know, 10 or 15 pounds. And then I started to clean up my diet. And by the time I was in the, in the 175, 180 range, I was down to eating 25, 2600 calories. So then I, you know, had to keep getting leaner. So I dropped down, dropped down pretty soon to get to my contest condition. I was now doing a pretty good amount of cardio plus I was down to about 1800 calories. This is where people make the mistake thinking, oh my gosh, Joe broke his metabolic set point. Joe had metabolic damage. Because if Joe was good at what he did, or if Joe had a good coach, everybody knows he could have just come down from that 2800 calorie mark to you know maybe 2400, 2300 calories, like take out 500 calories a day, mathematically, you would automatically see that you can lose a pound of body fat a week. And then all of a sudden, even at that same 150 or 160 pound mark, Joe should be able to go back up to 3000 calories a day. If he does it responsibly, if he quote, reverse diets the right way, that's his metabolic set point. Absolutely false. That's not my metabolic set point. That's just how much food it takes for me to stay obese. That's what I have to eat to stay 50 pounds too heavy. That is not the metabolic set point. The metabolic set point is, is left to your own devices, ad libitum eating, eating whatever you want, whenever you want. You know, where do you naturally stay? And I don't mean necessarily with like, you know, the American diet, eating McDonald's three times a day and all that. Uh, I, I mean, like, like at a natural environment. So when you look at, at what it takes me, and you can, you can see these subjective and physiological responses from yourself and, and clients, 
for me to say, all I had to do is start moving a little bit, then I dropped 20 pounds, just bam, you know, that's, that was, you know, an easy drop. There, there's no pain there. There's no suffering. I just had to get off my ass. Then to get down another 10 or 15 pounds, like, okay, now, now Joe has to actually come down to 23, 24 calories. Is that suffering? I was never hungry. That's not suffering. But by the time I get down to six or 7% body fat, and now I want to go lower, now I'm suffering. Now I'm hungry. Now I'm watching the clock. Now I'm feeling hypoglycemic sometimes. And that's when, if you were to measure people and look at leptin levels, ghrelin levels, look at thyroid hormone, look at, look at the suppression of, of, of you know, your, your metabolism, your resting metabolic rate, now you are pushing your body into survival mode, which is the metabolic set point. You know, your body, you, you trigger your body, you go into this threshold where your body all of a sudden says, okay, hang on a second. We are, we are running out of reserves. Body fat cells are getting too low. That's why leptin is secreted through adipose tissue. And we got to do something. We have to slow this guy down. And so, you know, that's when you, you get, you, you feel lethargic on purpose. You feel like you have to sleep more because your body's doing everything it can to try and extend life through your imposed starvation. So I, I can do that. I, you know, and I have, I've, I've gotten strided glutes. I've been down to 4% body fat. I've, I've, I've been down to the last, you know, handful of pounds of body fat on my body. And it was a lot of work. It was massive consistency. It was anything but comfortable, but I could do it. I pushed below my metabolic set point. Now, what a lot of people do is as soon as they're done, it's like, bam, you know, here comes all the food and we immediately gain 30 pounds. We've all been there. And, and then your body's happy. Your body says, okay, I got those reserves back up. I can, I can chill. But what if we actually go through kind of a metabolic rebuilding phase and we start increasing food incrementally, we get our food intake up and we get our body composition up a little bit more. I don't think, and I think you would all agree that the cost is just too high. You know, could I stay at 4% body fat and 150 pounds forever? I absolutely could. I would, I would be watching every single bite I eat. I would be tracking macros like an accountant. I would never miss a cardio session and I could live there. But by gradually incrementally increasing my food intake and letting my body composition change, when I retired from physique sport, I spent the next decade at about 155 to 158 pounds. So five, six, seven pounds higher than my, my, my lowest weight. Um, I was that close to competition weight, still had abs, but my food intake was now back up to 22, 2300 calories a day. I actually was still doing a good amount of intense cardio and training because I just liked it. I mean, I was, I was doing some running and so forth. I wasn't using exercise or diet to keep myself lean. It wasn't a chore. I didn't feel like I was dieting. I didn't feel like I was in that, the throes of a deep, deep, you know, painful contest experience. And so you could surmise in all of the research that I'm, I'm showing, even though it wasn't tested on my physiology at that point, 
you could say, okay, that's Joe's metabolic set points at around six or 7% body fat. He's no longer getting the physiological cues that he's dying or starving. Resting metabolic rate came back up. Hormone profile came back up. Testosterone was fine. Uh, you know, thyroid hormone, you know, as good as it was before, everything came back just by getting up to six or 7% body fat. That's, that's metabolic set point. Now, can I, can I change my metabolic set point? That's the big question of the day. No, you cannot. Unless you're willing to go in and, and change your hypothalamus, you will not change your metabolic set point. But like I did, you can learn to maximize and live there. I was living a principled, healthy lifestyle, doing the kind of training and eating food. I was still having cheat meals and things like that. Matter of fact, during that decade, I didn't track macros. I did not track macros that entire time. Once I was done competing, I'm like, I am done with that shit. I'm, I'm just like, I, I can do intuitive eating. I know enough about nutrition. I, I can do this. And so I intentionally just kind of gave that up. And, and that's maximizing, that's living what I think, you know, most of us want at that, that leanest, healthiest level. And, and it's really not dieting or suffering. It's just being responsible. Again, you can, you can gravitate up a couple pounds if you want. You go on vacation, you come back and you lose it a little bit. That's actually using your metabolic set point as the anchor that you want. It's like, okay, I know where that is. So I'm going to stay within this range with my food and my, my, my weight. And I'm going to, I'm going to control it that way. So then, you know, fast forward, if you do decide, well, you know, I, I kind of want a stronger off season. I want, I want to gain a little bit more. I want to gain 10 or 15 pounds and so forth. Absolutely possible. Now you get to eat more food. You get all those anabolic benefits of that, which, which helps you with strength and lean body mass gain, but your body fat's still going to go up. You can also control that responsibly. If you're doing it very incrementally, that, that's why when I did decide to kind of have an extended off season, even though I was retired, I, I wanted to regain some weight after holding myself in the 150s for, for a decade. Uh, that's why I only let myself gain five pounds a year for the next handful of years, you know, three or four years, because I wanted this. It wasn't just like, hey, I decide I want to be 170 pounds again. Let's let's go have a bender of a weekend. It's, no, you know, let's let's use this for an anabolic window as long as I can. Let's actually increase food intake to to maximize training and strength and, and go that direction. And then, you know, come back down when you want. So all of that said, I'm sure I have missed a, uh, a couple points that you guys will help me clean up, but who has any questions whatsoever on metabolic set point? Go ahead, Brooke. I do. So when you were talking about um, just the five to six pounds above your stage weight, like it's so important, like just for like general public people to understand that like in order to achieve that physique, like that level of five to six above that stage weight like you had to suffer like you you had to suffer um to achieve like the leanest physique possible and then through the reverse diet and through being consistent you were able to still have and still be five to six pounds above that and then just live your best live your ideal best life that you enjoy um so i guess would you say like would you have to suffer to reach that level of leanness 
um, to achieve that look where you're at your metabolic set point where you're happy? No, I mean, on, on the way down to that level, like when I was at 200 and then I came down to, you know, my, my stage weight, you know, all the way down to the 165, 170 level, it, it just doesn't feel bad. You are, you are dieting, you know, I'm not eating every hot fudge Sunday I want, but, but like you described going from metabolic set point to the kind of condition you need to be a physique athlete. Right. That, that, that's where the kind of suffering is that, that I would hope most general population lifestyle clients don't want anyway. I mean, I, you know, for me to be 158 pounds, I look fine. I mean, no, you know, with, with a shirt off, nobody's going to say, oh, man, Joe, you could, you could lose a pound or two. I mean, I, I've, got, I've still got veins in my abs at that point. I just don't have sprited glutes. Um, so, you know, but, right. but one, of, one of the things that you said made me think of the fact that, you know, this, even that level of, you know, quote, suffering is, is almost like any athlete kind of paying the price, you know, that's what it takes to win. But for somebody just to, you know, reduce the risk of heart disease to to get down to the, the level that they want aesthetically, it, it really just takes consistency and responsibility. And I prefer to do that incredibly slowly. You know, when I when I did that 11 month diet to win my pro card from 200 pounds. And then as I've gone, you know, through, you know, that a little bit of a regain to have a little bit of an off season now, and then coming back down, you know, I, I just, it's so much better if you don't pressure yourself to do things. Cause you can suffer. Like even at, even at 200 pounds to 190, I could decide to go zero carbs. Let's do eight hours of cardio a day. I could do that, but it's just not necessary. Well, it's like when you turn to those extremes and you lose fat too quick, you will definitely be losing more than just body fat. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'm actually interested. Like, oh, what was that? I said, yeah, you'll 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 lose muscle and so forth, which is which is why I've always wanted to do it very gradually for myself. Yeah. Same. Um, and also, I'm curious about like the Minnesota starvation study. Like, I wonder what their protein intake was just like from like a person, like a physique athlete, like obviously um, we're educated, like a gram, a gram, the gram per pound, right? Like that's, that's been thrown out now um, in a lot of research that I read too. It's kind of that standard of like 0.7 to like 1.2, like I think is the tipping point for um, like maximum type. Yeah. I'll have to go back and look at that. I, you know, every once I, I kind of forget that that ever happened, that Minnesota study. And then when I see it cited somewhere else, it always brings me back like, oh my gosh, I, I forgot they did something so bizarre. But well, uh, Dr. Dr. Campbell talked about that a few times. So that's where I'm familiar with it. So we've had conversations about that before too, but yeah, he, he got the whole thing. So mm -hmm. maybe I'll have to borrow it from him. Yeah, we got a, a couple of good questions here through chat. Uh, Tracy, you know, what, what Eric Salazar did with that weighted vest study, if, if you guys didn't know this, um, you know, he's a, he's a great coach, IFBB pro, and mm -hmm. he just had this little hypothesis on his own. He was working with Dr. James Krieger for, for a contest, and he thought, you know, all of this stuff about, you know, your metabolic rate coming down and NEAT coming down and so forth, I'm going to I'm going to try and keep my energy expenditure actually the same and see what happens. 
And so he was tracking steps. He was intentionally trying to stay more active. So he would, he would try and replicate those behaviors like getting, getting up. If he uses a standing computer station, he's not going to sit down all of a sudden because he's tired. He made himself do that. And, and every five pounds he lost, he would add five pounds to a body vest, a weighted vest. So that by the time he got down 20 pounds, he had a 20 pound vest on that he wore as soon as he woke up until he went to bed, he wore that vest. And so he was trying to replicate that. And at least in his own anecdotal self case study, he never had to do the typical constant reduction of food intake. So he was able to drop his calories to a certain level to create that initial diet response. And then he pretty much kept it there. Um, which I think is incredibly important because that, that was verified by a couple of the studies I looked at, you know, one that looks specifically at energy expenditure and the other at, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that you, as, as you lose weight, you become more efficient, your body's lighter. So your heart, your lungs, your muscular system doesn't work as hard. That that's why in that one study where there were four 10 day inpatients, like you had to come in and check in for 10 days at different intervals. That, that was to recalibrate. It's like, okay, you've lost, you know, 15 pounds. Let's, let's check your resting metabolic rate and we have to adjust your food accordingly. And so they would bring their calories down. So that, that's one thing, Tracy, that really kind of rectified that, that I thought was just a, a brilliant thing to try. Yeah. He's actually uh, prepping for uh, getting on the stage in natural um, this year. So him and James just started again, the, the process of throwing on the weight and really the, uh, the change in calories is typically is around 2,600 calories and, um, for show to prep, uh, 2,300 calories, never changed the entire time. Just like got completely shredded down to this, you know, did five, I think it was five competitions in one year to win his pro card at the end. But it's funny because he never had to go through a peak week. Never, never had to go through a peak week. I mean, he chose to do a peak week for the, to get his pro card, um, a slight peak week. But like it was just like every other day for him to just go get into a competition. So he wasn't hungry, didn't have any of those those things. And, you know, here he is again getting ready. And he's, you know, using this as a parameter for um, prepping other clients and too, but it definitely has to be based on um, having an active lifestyle when be for somebody that sits all the time. But it was just interesting to see how he was actually able to put on muscle while dieting just because of his body of feeling like he actually weighed more and he doesn't only just wear it on the vest. He wears it. He has right, weight on his ankles. So he distributes right. the weight across the across his body but it's interesting to see like how does that affect um you know what how we view um you know our metabolic set point when we have different variables that come into place um when you do experiments like he does and he's big on the experiment that's why that's why i said tracy it was interesting to see the hypothesis that metabolic set point often ignores expenditure because you know, what if you just, just like the astronaut example I gave to begin with, you know, what if we just all kind of did that? Like even, mm-hmm. even before I've lost 20 pounds, what if I wear a 20 pound vest every day and five pound ankle and wrist weights? Um, you know, that's, that could be an extra hundred or 200 calories a day that I lose just through neat. Um, and that's, you know, that again, it doesn't change your metabolic set point. Your metabolic set point is a constant, 
but it changes the work level that you're doing with that as the constant. And, and I think that again, has some, some merit. Yeah. Well, it's just interesting because, you know, it's funny because, you know, we always think when we set calories for clients that, you know, the bigger you are, the more calories you get to eat. So if you're, you know, if you're putting additional weight on yourself and you're you like the whole, like your body thinks you weigh more, right? Your body thinks you weigh more. So then you actually expend a little more calories by just that process alone. Um, and so it's just interesting kind of to think about how that relates to a lot of different things that we're doing in the industry as far as like prepping clients, weight loss, long-term sustainability, and what that looks like for a lot of people. Because I know a lot of times we talk in the realm of like competitors, but does a lot of this apply to like the general population? I think that they sure. have different considerations. Yeah, we got a couple of good questions in the chat box, but you, you make me think, Tracy, that uh, something I didn't mention today is when I was eating 3,000, 3,200 calories a day, that was not fun. That was totally no. not fun. I mean, I was, I was eating every three hours, a gut wrenching amount of food. And a lot of people think, you know, that's the goal. Like, Hey man, if you got the fast metabolism ever, wouldn't it be great to eat all that food? You, the, the relative state of hunger cues is also tied to your leptin levels, hormonal levels and so forth. So at, at 2,200 calories, I'm not hungry all day just because I used to eat 3,200. I'm, I'm not, I, you know, if, if anything, I'm less hungry because blood sugar levels are more consistent. Receptor sites are, you know, more sensitive to glucose and insulin. So if anything, I feel more comfortable on both ends. I'm not constantly overfed and bloated and, I, and I'm not unstable with, with blood sugar fluctuations and so forth. But somebody, somebody brought up the logical question. Again, I knew you guys would point out some great stuff. Like, how do you really know what your metabolic set point is at, you know, if you've dieted or haven't dieted, you've been, you've maintained weight for 15 years. Like, like, how do you know what it is? And, and you could try to biochemically surround it. Like you could get blood work every two weeks of dieting and so forth and see when your T3 levels start to come down and all that. Um, but I, I think it truly comes down more to you know, where, where you feel comfortable, like I said, and, and, and I can give you some very general guidelines for women. It's generally going to be around 10 to 12% body fat, maybe even 14%. If the average female is 20 to 22% body fat, like my wife has abs. I mean, she's 50 years old. She's had four kids and I've never seen her without abs. She's just an ectomorph she got on my in-body scanner for the first time ever. And she's at like 19% body fat. So that's a, that's a female with abs. When you get down to contest level, you know, now you're going below that 10, 12, 14% mark. And that's where people will, will start to notice. And, and for guys, it's typically in that six to 8% range. Um, but I, I think you just really have to test that and see. You have to you have to go through dieting and and stay there, go through maintenance, and and then those answers will will appear. You'll see how you feel, and if you're going and getting hormonal tests and so forth, you'll you'll see that. Um, let me guess, you guys are slamming questions at me. I got to keep up here. Hang on. <laughs> uh, let's see. Okay, uh, if somebody is moving more in the form of cardio. You know, it, this is a great question always. It, should you just do more exercise, more movement to oxidize more fat and then be able to eat more calories? That's certainly a goal. 
and I, and I think Brooke, there is a point where you have to say, okay, that's, we definitely want to err on the side of a good consistent amount of movement for that reason. And I would always general population or competitor, I would always rather have a really good, stable, consistent amount of effort on the expenditure side and eat more, but it also has to be commensurate with what you really want out of life. You know, I'm, I'm not going to make a 60 year old woman go run a 5k every day just so, so she can eat a donut. Right. Um, but it's, you know, but yeah, I mean, movement's always my default. Like I want people to move. That's, that's where you've got, you know, blood lipid and blood glucose disposal. You've got, you just, you know, you're healthier orthopedically. There's all kinds of reasons you want that. Um, let me, let me grab another question here. Um, so my brother, uh, again, you know, you have to go by DNA. My brother and I share the same two parents. So out of the billions of potential combinations of DNA, you, you end up pretty, pretty similar with, uh, with siblings. And, you know, we've never done any kind of genetic testing, but, um, I, I would say, you know, his genetic, his, his is actually just by having zero movement. Like, like even for me, when I say it was hard to get up to 200 pounds, I've been training since I was 11 years old. I've never missed a workout since I was 11 years old that I didn't plan to miss. Still to this day, I have not competed in 16 years. I'm doing three to four days a week of aggressive cardio, not, not because I have to, because I like it. I like movement. I like being healthy and functional and athletic. Uh, you know, I'm squatting and deadlifting as heavy as I can. And so my brother's never done any of that. You know, number one, he's an alcoholic. Number two, he's never dieted. Number three, he's never exercised a day in his life. And so that's the difference. You know, those are the genetics. Again, coming down to the movement side, which he does not capitalize on at all. And the fact that he's chosen to eat as horribly as you possibly can. So, you know, I, I, I said one, one little qualifier was, you know, in a natural state, you know, forget eating McDonald's three times a day and that kind of thing, like, like in a natural biological state for an evolutionarily defined homo sapien, what's normal. I, I think I represent that a little bit more than my brother because of activity. You know, it's not normal to sit in front of a computer screen 18 hours a day, but, but a good question. Very good question to clarify that. Um, you guys, uh, you guys can, can also just raise your hand and ask these. You don't have to throw them all through the chat box, but that's, that's totally fine. Okay. Sorry. I was like, oh, I was just trying to Is that you, Brooke? Out. Brooke's just yeah, having a conversation with me through the chat box. Yeah. Uh, let me grab one from, um, from Felicia here real quick. Um, yeah. So, you know, body composition is generally measured by body fat first, Felicia. So, um, Certainly, I have, you know, maybe 20 or 25 pounds more lean body mass, more muscle than I would if I had never started lifting weights. But when you look at body fat cells, and, and that being one of the big loops between your brain and your endocrine system, you know, that's a huge measurement is, is how, how much volume is in those body fat cells. And so even your body tends to look at that more than anything. And then the extra activity, the, the extra lean body mass that's just kind of bonus or, or that at least just sets your context. So that's, that's why I keep coming back to your body fat level as where your, your metabolic set point is. But uh, go ahead, Brooke, go ask your final questions and we'll, we'll let you kind of close out the day for us. 
Sure. Um, sure. So, um, yeah. So like with like the physique lab and everything at USF, I've done so many people's RMRs and it is so common. So like, as you gain more lean body mass, um, over time, your metabolic rate can actually increase. Um, so would this, I know you said that metabolic set point really can't change, but what if you're like putting on more like lean body mass, like you're a different body. So, so these are two different things, but they work in concert together. So I can be, I can have 140 pounds lean body mass or 160 pounds lean body mass. And again, that's bonus. That's like, now I have that additional extra resting metabolic rate, as you said, but my mm -hmm. metabolic set point is still more tied to body fat on top of that. So my body weight will change. I, I can be, I can be 6% body fat in 145 or 6% at 170 because of my lean body mass, but my, my, my hypothalamus is still paying more attention to the amount of body fat stores available. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And that's one of the things some of these researchers checked, like they were looking at even like appendicular things or, you know, in different cell groups, like let's look at these organelles and maybe something different is happening there. So that they kept trying to prove, or at least double check, is this really a hypothalamus upper motor neuron type thing? Or could it be something somewhere else, even yeah. a collection of all of these variables? And it's just not man, it's just it's so tied to the circadian rhythms. And, um, you know, think of it even just in biology, like if, if you didn't have the level of consciousness, you do like you're, you're a fruit fly, or, you know, something mm -hmm. like that, like, how do you know how much to eat and so forth? How do you know when to feed and when to not? And it's just, it's tied to those brainstem hypothalamus level responses, which again, the, the reason we see that direct tie to the, the circadian rhythms is because it's tied to like, whether you're nocturnal species or not, like when is food available? All of those things are so controlled at that biological evolutionary level and that's the problem with us as Western diet Americans who could eat anything we want, whenever we want. Uh, okay. Now we're out here almost looking for these supernatural cues and how magically we can change our metabolic set point. And nature is saying, no, this is, you, you've got millions of years worth of DNA coded here for an exact reason. And that's yeah. for you to survive. And, and it's actually, it's actually, funny because like evolutionary like speaking like as you look back like people really didn't have the internet they didn't have cell phones they weren't sitting all the time they were moving so like us now it's like it would seem like evolutionary early um yeah of course we're going to be able to store more body fat if we are just not moving like we used to yeah we, we couldn't uh we couldn't order icon meals with one click of the button you know 200 no, years right? ago like, oh, 50 icon meals. Awesome. Like, all right, guys. Well, we are at the top of the hour, so I'm going to wrap it up here.